morning, everyone. My name is Will, and I am one of the pastors here at this church, New Life Press, and we are continuing along in a series called Encounters with Jesus, where we're praying that God would open up our eyes to see how different people, as they encounter this risen Savior named Jesus, has been, have been transformed and changed and healed uh, in their lives and their relationships. And so today we look at, uh, quite appropriately, this guy named Bartimaeus, who is down and out, who's marginalized, who needs help, who's not respected, and he's in desperate need of God's mercy, not just for his sight, but more importantly, for his soul. And so I pray that you could read this with me and uh, glean a lot of application for your life in the contemporary world. And so why don't we try to do that? So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 46, and to the end of the chapter, verse 52. This is God's Word for us this morning. Verse 46 says this, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out, All the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. Well, the, quite appropriate that not only through our last song that we just sang, but also through the prayer that Elder Andy eloquently has led us through, Amazing Grace, in fact, probably captures really the heart and the theme of the Gospel of Mark. Most of us who grew up in the church, you know how the hymn goes, doesn't it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. In that last phrase there, I was blind, but now I see, in some sense captures the main thrust of the Gospel of Mark and what the author is trying to capture when he shares about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Blindness to sight might actually be the most succinct expression of the Gospel of Mark. Well, if you ever read the Gospel back in chapter 8, there was another blind guy You remember the story, if you ever read the gospel, the crowds bring a blind man to Jesus, and it takes him two times to give him sight. He brings him from blindness to sight. In other words, all of Jesus' teaching and all his miracles as recorded in the gospel will ultimately climax and culminate in the death and resurrection of Jesus with the hopes of bringing people from blindness to sight. That's why at the end of chapter 8, Jesus poses this question to his disciples and says, Do you not yet perceive or understand having eyes? Do you not yet see? And that's a question that we have to wrestle with here today, you and I. Having eyes, do you not yet see? Do you see but not yet understand? And you're thinking, well, I have 20-20 vision, but actually what Mark is trying to get out in his own spiritual capacity and his methodology is to say, you may be 
physically okay to see, but many of us are spiritually and absolutely, in totality, blind. So how do you move from blindness to sight? Well, that's what we'll talk about here today. Maybe we could dialogue about that. You think you see life clearly, but what the gospel is saying, without Jesus, you don't see life that clearly. The priorities of life, the goodness of life, the purpose of life, the mission of life, the vision of life, you don't really fully see that with clarity unless you see it through the lens of what Mark says is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross in which he died. So let's talk about that. How do you move from blindness to sight? Well, you look at this miracle here with blind Bartimaeus, and there's three aspects of this engagement, this encounter that we see that could be applicable today. First, you'll see that out of all the people recorded in Mark 10, this blind beggar is the one who has spiritual insight to understanding who Jesus is. Spiritual insight. Secondly, we see out of all the people, especially compared to the crowds, there's only one person who had relentless mercy, and that's Jesus, the son of David. And then thirdly, after being brought from blindness to sight, Bartimaeus becomes a disciple of Jesus. So three things that we'll just consider briefly here. Spiritual insight, merciful mercy and compassion, and then last but not least, we'll look at discipleship and action. So let's get into this. Spiritual insight. One thing that you can recognize for people who are desperate is that they tend to be very persistent. They're desperate, they're persistent, they're relentless, they're tenacious. Bartimaeus, he's really determined here. The passage says that he's leaving Jericho in verse 46. He's with his disciples, Jesus that is, and a crowd of followers. And as they're leaving, we're told that there's a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus. His name is Bartimaeus, and he's on the side of the road. Now, in Mark, what you have to understand is that Mark really likes talking about geography and placement because it has a spiritual or theological point. So to tell us that Bartimaeus was on the side of the road is basically telling us that he's on the sidelines of life, that he's not important, he's not the main attraction, there's no red carpet that's being rolled out for Bartimaeus, he's marginalized, he's forgotten about, he's looked down upon, he's a nobody, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. In fact, when you look at his name, Bar comes from the Aramaic prefix, meaning the son of. Timaeus is a Greek name, which maybe suggests to you and I that Bartimaeus was both Aramaic and also Greek. So he's cultivating and straddling the difficulties of cultural and ethnic divides back in the days of the New Testament. So he had a lot of problems here, not just because he was blind, but he was ethnically mixed, potentially. But this nobody, friends, this Bartimaeus, he's persistent. He has spiritual insight, and what he lacks in physical eyesight, he makes up in Holy Spirit insight. He can't see with his eyes, friends, but we'll notice that he begins to see with his heart. I often wonder how Bartimaeus knew that it was Jesus that was walking by, because Jesus actually was a very common name back then. But for some reason, he knew it just wasn't any Jesus, but Bartimaeus being blind heard and knew that it was Jesus of Nazareth. How did he know that? Well, I mean, at this point, probably Jesus is popular. He's famous. People are angry at him. People are following him. They want something from him. So if you're blind and you're down and out and you're desperate, well, you have nothing to lose, so you're persistent. So you just cry out, sort of casting the lots or playing the lottery and saying, maybe he'll heal me here today. So he cries out with all his heart, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds rebuke him as often today we do when 
homeless people or beggars or those who are financially distressed, be quiet. Jesus has important work to do. Don't detract him. He's on his way to the cross. He's got to go to the capital of this country. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. He's not here to see people like you. So what does Bartimaeus do? He's even more persistent because his spiritual insight, he sees something in Jesus that no one else does. And I'm going to explain that to you. And because he sees Jesus for who he truly is, his physical condition doesn't stop him. The oppression of the crowds, the rebuke of the people don't stop him. In fact, it motivates him because verse 48, it says, all the more he cries out. So he says, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. All the more he cries out. Stronger, more desperately. Son of David, have mercy on me. I like to think in large part, the reason that Bartimaeus was so persistent and so urgent is because you'll never know the reality of Jesus if you don't understand your necessity for Jesus. Does that make sense? You'll never desire and long in your heart to be with a Savior if you never recognize your sin and need for a Savior. No, it's the same thing in everyday life. If you're sick, then all of a sudden the doctor becomes that much more important. If you have a toothache or you need a root canal, all of a sudden the dentist becomes that much more important. You're focused, you're precise, you're desperate. So until you see the spiritual doctor of Jesus because of your need for spiritual healing, that spiritual insight, you'll never be like Bartimaeus. You'll never really want to be someone who cries out for mercy. But I think Bartimaeus got this. He understood this. Did you know, in fact, that the first time in the gospel we see Jesus addressed as a son of David is actually in Bartimaeus. This insight into identifying Jesus comes from the blind beggar. And I think Mark makes a point of that. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, 14, there is a king that's promised to the nation of Israel, a king that would return, establish a kingdom, bring healing and wholeness, economic and power, political might. They're waiting for this king. And Bartimaeus in the Gospel of Mark is the only one who sees that Jesus is the son of David. Actually, in the Greek, it says, son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. The title is emphatic. He knows David was the king of kings and the fulfillment and the heir to the throne is finally Jesus. And of all the people and all the education and all the powerful and all the connections and all the, all the powerful elite people, it's the beggar who sees with spiritual insight that the heir to the throne is Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's a title for Jesus that only appears twice in the Gospel of Mark, once by Bartimaeus and then secondly by Jesus' own lips in which he calls himself the son of David. He is a savior. He is the Messiah. He is the promised king. And the first person in the Gospel of Mark to recognize the true identity of Jesus comes from no other than a blind beggar who is in desperate need of God's mercy. Here's the point, friends, for you and I. Chapter 10, if you didn't know the Gospel of Mark, is really the hinge of the Gospel. There are 16 chapters. And in the first 10 chapters, what you see is they focus really on his teaching, on his development, Jesus' life. In the chapters 11 through 16, there's a transition and a hinge in which we begin to see Jesus' suffering, triumphal entry, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, 
So we see in the first 10 chapters his teaching in, verses, in chapters 11 to 16, his life, death, and resurrection. So the hinge between the first 10 chapters and chapters 11 through 16 comes in this one last account of healing the blind beggar. It tells us it's really important. The entire purpose of the Gospel of Mark has finally been realized not in the disciples of Jesus, not in the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but in this blind beggar who finally sees I need mercy, and the son of David, the heir to the throne, can give it to me. Having eyes, do you not yet see? Do you not yet understand? I think Bartimaeus slowly would say, I am blind and have no eyes, but I'm beginning to see. I'm a beggar with no education or money. I'm beginning to understand. Many of you know Helen Keller lived her whole life blind and deaf was once asked rather insensitively, is it terrible to be blind? And she replied simply, better to be blind and to see with the heart than have two good eyes and to see nothing. I think that's sort of what Jesus is getting at. Bartimaeus is the only person who had no physical sight, but he's the only one that could truly see who Jesus was. Is telling you and I, we may be able to see physically, but Bartimaeus is telling us we need to see with our heart. We need to see spiritually to see that Jesus is the son of David, the one who would rule our lives, control what we do, and that is when our lives begin to fly, to cohere, and to thrive. And so let's look at the second point here. Mercy. That's something that you and I would have to understand and get a grips on. You know, we see mercy here, especially in contrast between the crowds and Jesus, don't we? In other words, the response and interaction to Bartimaeus is telling because, well, look at it. You have a man who is blind and at the mercy of strangers. Let's try to pretend we're Bartimaeus for a second. You know, place yourself into his shoes, his condition. You get a taste and flavor of Bartimaeus. Maybe we could do this sort of make-believe for a little bit. You close your eyes. You imagine your entire life looking out into the abyss of darkness. You don't see anything except blackness. You're sitting along the the road, hoping for people to show you mercy, but all they do is give you rebuke and discipline and tell you to be quiet. You're at their mercy, but you don't get any from the crowds. You've heard stories about Jesus. He teaches like no other. He heals like no other. He loves like no other. And all of a sudden, there's a ruckus that builds up because there's crowds following this Jesus of Nazareth. You're blind in darkness. What do you got to lose? So you cry out, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is your chance, your one hope, isn't it? You cry out into darkness, have mercy on me, Jesus. And what do you hear in response? All the murmuring in the crowds telling you, Bartimaeus, be quiet. Stop talking. Jesus is on mission right now. He's got important people to see, not people like you. Of course he doesn't want to see beggars like you. Not people like you, Bartimaeus. Important people. That's what Jesus would have heard. He cries out with all his heart. The crowds tell him to be quiet, but here's the mercy that we see in the Savior. In contrast to the crowds, what does Jesus do? He walks along the way. He hears somebody crying out to have mercy. What does Jesus do? With his entourage, verse 19 says, or rather in the verses it says, Jesus stopped. We see that Jesus has mercy not just by his words, but really by his actions. In verse 49, it says Jesus stopped. And on that very action hangs the fate, not only of Bartimaeus' physical sight, but his soul. 
Isn't that wonderful? Imagine the scene. A blind guy that everyone's rebuking. Jesus with all this ruckus and crowd, and the crowds are murmuring, and they're talking is growing louder, and all of a sudden, somehow, Jesus, in the loudness of the crowd, hears this one blind beggar, all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, because his heart is merciful. And the very eternity of Bartimaeus hangs on that very moment of Jesus Christ. The crowd wants to move forward and neglect the marginalized, but Jesus hears the cry of the marginalized, and the powerless, and the poor, and he stops on his tracks to heal him. He tells the crowd to bring Bartimaeus to me. Bartimaeus springs up and comes to him. And it's funny, Jesus surprisingly asks him a question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Of course, you know that he wants to be blind and have his sight restored to him. But as one scholar said, what's unique about this healing is its warmth and interest in the person healed the warmth and interest of the person healed. Do you know what he means by this? Of course, Jesus sees Bartimaeus and says, I know you need your eyesight, but he's humanizing those who are below him, not to think he's better than the blind man, but to say he's human. So the warmth and the tenderness is something that is really highlighted in this passage. The reason Jesus asks the question is because he wants to ask him as a human being, not as a problem to be solved. Does that make sense? We tend to want to fix problems and not really humanize people with warmth and tenderness. He wants to converse with the guy. He wants the guy, Bartimaeus, to articulate his own reasons for coming, to express his own experiences, to give reasons for his own suffering. Now, it's one of the first lessons in counseling. Oftentimes, as a counselor, you may think you know the problem of the person, but the healing process in counseling and really serving one another is to humanize them by asking them questions so they could express themselves in their own words, so they could share in their own experiences, not just because they're a problem to be fixed, but they're people to be loved. Because the more compassionate you are, the more like Jesus you are. The more you understand your brokenness, the more your heart breaks for the people who are broken. The more you take hold of the marginalized and powerless, the more the power of the gospel has taken hold of you. And one of the ways that it expresses itself is that Jesus says, what can I do for you? Let's talk a little bit. Goes up to Bartimaeus, and I see your situation, but let me know. How are, how are you doing? You're a human made in the image of God. I'm going to dignify that. I'm going to honor that. Let's talk here a little bit. I'm not just going to consider you a problem. You're a person, and I'm not just going to fix you. I'm going to love you. Let's talk about this. I think you and I would do well to kind of consider that lesson in our families as well as our relationships. Yeah, you may think you know the problem, but really it's not the problem that needs to be fixed. It's the person that needs to be loved. And so you just converse with them and talk to them. Let them be felt. Let them be heard. Let them be seen. Let them be recognized. So that mercy and compassion can come out. Here's a lesson for you and me, not only in that point of counseling, but this. It may tell us that the most important thing in life is to learn the lesson that every day and every morning that you wake up, the most important lesson is to cry out for God's mercy every morning of your life. See, if you're honest with yourself, now I get it. The more successful, the more educated, the more competent you are, the less you feel like you need God's grace and mercy. 
because life seems to be doing well, your relationships are doing well, you seem to be doing well, your physical health is intact, your financial health is intact, your relational health is intact. No, life is really good. We tend to forget that the reason it's good is because of God's mercy. So maybe sometimes God shakes our lives up because there's brokenness and hurt and death and pain. And it's a reminder to all of us that we only get by day to day because Jesus gives us his mercy. He holds back in his wisdom and divine providence all the suffering that could really happen and all the pain that could really happen. And when it does happen, he walks alongside of you in the midst of that pain and that brokenness and hurt. Now, God is providential. You know, there's a lot of families that are mourning and grieving as our church seems to be getting older and then our parents are reaching that age in which they're becoming more brittle and unhealthy. Already talked about Danny Bjorn's dad, Linda Jew's dad, last night Ryan Graff's dad. And for other people out there that we may not be able to share publicly, we know that you're grieving and suffering and hurting. It may be a wake-up call not to say that God doesn't love us, but he loves us so much that the lesson may be to be reminded, as competent as you think you are, the lesson is to say, Lord, have mercy on me, because that's the only way that life will actually work. I think in the passage, Mark makes that point emphatic, because in verse 51, when Bartimaeus comes to Jesus, he says, what do you want me to do for you? You know, he said that same question to his disciples back in chapter 10, verse 35. The disciples come up, Jesus goes to them, what do you want me to do for you? The same exact question, verse 35, verse 51, but the answers show two different ways to life. The answers show us that one says, glory, I want fame, I want power, I want riches, I want prestige, honor, and respect. Bartimaeus says, I want mercy. Don't need to tell you that one way is the right way, the other will lead to devastation. What do the disciples say? Verse 35, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? They respond, grant to us the best seats in the house, the VIP seats, one on your right hand, one on your left, in glory. What do they want? Fame and prestige and glory, positions of majesty and splendor, superiority on either hand of Jesus on his majestic throne in heaven. They're using Jesus. He's their ticket to greatness. They think about this. And it's ironic that the disciples, and these are their inner circle of disciples, they've been with Jesus, they've been ministering to him, they've been learning from him, they still haven't gotten it. That's why they're still spiritually blind. What do you want me to do for you? Give me the best seat in the house. I want to be better than anyone. Friends, some of you are like that in church, isn't it? It's sort of the same sort of principle. You've been at church the longest. You know your catechism. You know your theology. You think you have church under the grips of your wisdom but you realize that you don't think you have the position of place that you want in church, and so you feel disgruntled and hurt, but in the heart of hearts, you're basically like the disciples in verse 35. You want glory. You want majesty. You want to be on the right and left seats of superiority. When Bartimaeus comes from blindness to sight, what do you want me to do for you? He wants mercy which is kindness and concern and compassion. And I think that these two stories in chapter 10 show us exactly what it is that Jesus came to do for us. The disciples, we'll soon discover, seem to miss out on Jesus' point. Bartimaeus is the only one who sees with spiritual insight that he needs mercy with great clarity. 
Actually, everyone in chapter 10 don't get the lesson. The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Sell everything that you got. So I know that you really don't find your identity and your treasures and your wealth. Give it all away and come follow me. And what does the rich man ruler do? He walks away in sadness and confusion and processing. What does this mean? I worked my whole life for riches and accomplishments. The two disciples that come up to him, they don't have the same riches, but they may have prestige and proximity to the man of the hour. If they want superiority, they still don't get it. But the one guy who gets it is this blind beggar who is down and out, not educated, not rich, no connections, and he's the one that sets the paradigm for you and I. The application is every day and every morning of your life. Just think about it for a second. Lord Jesus, on this day, have mercy on me. Help me to get through. And this leads us quickly to our last point. Those who know the mercy of Jesus become a disciple of Jesus. The healing of Bartimaeus is the saving of Bartimaeus. In verse 52, when Jesus says, Go your way, your faith has made you well. That language is not just saying your eyesight. Your faith has made you well means that he was saved. He just didn't get physical eyesight. He already had spiritual insight. Now he has salvation for his soul. The conversion of Bartimaeus, that's wonderful. You have here a man who is not like John and James in, in, the, in the past chapters of the gospel who are asking for prominence and glory, as I talked about. You have here a man who is simply being healed, not just of his eyesight, but of his soul. See, scholars and commentators will note very quickly, remember I said in the beginning of the message that Mark really highlights geography? So in the beginning of this healing, Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. After he gets saved, where do you see Bartimaeus? Your faith has made you well. Now he's on the main path following Jesus. And that's really the metaphor and the geography of our lives, isn't it? Before you're a Christian, you're always on the side of the road. Before you're saved, you're always on the side. You're not a main player. You're not following the right path. But if you're saved and truly saved, you become a disciple. And then he's bought on to the beginning of the road. After being healed and saved, the verses say, he immediately follows Jesus on the way. He was beside the road. Now he is on the way. And in some ways, that's the trajectory and the goal of all of our lives. Many of you may be too much along the side of the road, even if you are a believer. You push Jesus to the side, you push church to the side, kingdom priorities to the side. Yeah, you're really a believer, but you sort of walk like Bartimaeus before he was saved. If you're really a disciple, if you're really someone who follows Jesus, which is really the whole reason that our church here at New Life Press exists, because our vision is to impact Orange County by making gospel-centered, compassionate, missions-minded disciples, disciples who were once along the side of the road, but now have been on the way following Jesus. Just think about it for a moment. Are you too much along the side of the road? You can't receive Jesus without the obligation of following Jesus. That means you didn't really believe in Jesus if you're not on the way following Jesus. How do you know that you've been touched by Jesus' heart and power? How do you know that Jesus has called you out from darkness into light, from blindness into sight, that you were once lost and now that you've been found? The only way that you really know is not just through confession, but to realize as you look in your life, do a 180 and look back on the tracks of your life, and you'll realize back then I was along the side of the road, but now I'm along the way following Jesus in my life in my marriage, in my children, in my education, in my relationships, in my money, in my time, 
that you're on the way. James Edwards says this about the healing of Bartimaeus as we come to a close soon. The healing of Bartimaeus is surely the sum and center of all that Mark desires to convey about faith and discipleship. Someone from along the side, now on the way. My prayer and heart for myself, but also for everyone here, is that everyone would be along the way, on the way following Jesus. That's why our church exists here at the end of the day, is to get you and I consistently, persistently, continually on the way following Jesus. Are you on the way? Do other things sort of sidetrack you into these rest stops or these emergency exits? You've got to get back onto the highway to see Jesus as all his glory and his splendor, to realize that every moment of your life, the only reason that life begins to cohere is because Jesus had mercy on you. Now, this discussion, I mentioned this in the sermon a couple of times, discussion last night with a bunch of pastors talking about the different cultural idols and questions that you ask different cities of the country. Well, if you don't remember this, let me remind you. They say in New York... It's about your productivity. What can you contribute? In Washington, D.C., idolatry is about power. What do you have control in this nation? In Boston or Massachusetts, it's what you know because of education and intellect. Philadelphia, it's your family background and your connectivity, the city of brotherly love. In the Bay Area, San Francisco, it might be ingenuity, especially with the tech industry in San Jose. Los Angeles, they say it's all about how beautiful you are and the aesthetics of what you present to the world and your fashion and your looks and the cars you drive and the baby carriages that you push around. Orange County, I'm more convinced than ever, is idolizing being beside the road in comfort and not on the way, following Jesus in service and sacrifice. Comfort. Orange County is very comfortable i to admit, that's why I moved out here back in 2011, because it's so comfortable. But you've got to put your, your guard up to realize at the end of the day, we are called to be people on the way following Jesus, just like blind Bartimaeus. Now, Alistair Begg, when he spoke on this passage, he mentioned a hymn that really captured the heart of this. It was a 19th century hymn written by Fanny Crosby that captures really the heart and the point of the entire message that hymns oftentimes do, because... It articulates the point poetically in a way that I can't. Fanny Crosby says this, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on earth thou art calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on earth thou art calling, please, Lord Jesus, do not pass me by. The crowds tell him, be quiet. But Jesus stopped for you and me. Let's pray, friends. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much just for the grace and the power that I've received and the church has received. I pray that every one of us would be brought from blindness to sight and some of us don't automatically go from blindness to 2020, but we're slowly gaining sight in this spiritual walk called discipleship. I pray that you be gracious to us and have mercy on us. 
Help us, keep us needy and humble. Keep us dependent upon you. Lord, help us to move from being along the roadside to being on the way, following the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.